The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, June 8th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Attorney General Bill Barr, supercilious scold, was on Face the Nation Sunday making farcical claims that struck me as ludicrous, but were often rooted in subjectivity. For instance, are the police systemically racist? Barr says no. I say, well, only if we use the common understanding of the words system and racist. Like, is it true that they oversee a system that produces racially disparate, unjust outcomes? Yes, it is. But then came a very satisfying subject because he lied in a non-subjective way. It was not subject to subjectivity. In fact, it was based on the periodic table of elements. They were chemical irritants, the part. No, they were not chemical irritants. Pepper spray is not a chemical irritant. It's not chemical. Except, yes, it is. Cameron Logman, who helped develop pepper spray with the FBI, was quoted in the New York Times about 10 years ago after a bad use of the spray. And he said, quote, I have never seen such an inappropriate and improper use of chemical agents. Capsicum is naturally occurring, yet it is a chemical. That's the active ingredient in pepper spray. Perhaps the attorney general has never heard of organic chemistry. Perhaps he will decriminalize cocaine because it's naturally occurring. Maybe he's just engaged in a sideways critique of all those organic labels that don't mean anything. I mean, cyanide's organic. So I got to say, normally I don't consider an appropriate journalistic counterargument to be, what are you talking about? But in this case, I would have loved it. Pepper spray isn't a chemical. Then Margaret Brennan could have said, yeah, it is. And then he could have said whatever he wanted to say. And she could have followed up with, but it is, it is, it just is. You said it wasn't, but it is. At another point, Bill Barr confidently asserted, yes, Bill Barr bragging, confidently asserted this. All organizations have people who engage in misconduct. And you sometimes have to be careful as to when you ascribe that to the whole organization and when it really is some errant member who isn't following the rules. But doesn't... So horrible. Because the point is, yes, but at what cost? What is the consequence? For instance, if the mm, Houston Astros engage in misconduct, the cost is they know if the next pitch is a curveball. When the cops engage in misconduct, horrific deaths of innocent people occur. And not all organizations have members who engage in misconduct. In the United States, nuclear safety inspectors, to my knowledge, have never been known through malfeasance or nonfeasance to dishonestly have lied about nuclear safety. The costs are too high. There are no incidences, as far as I could tell, of American architects of skyscrapers purposefully engaging in malfeasance such that people died. Sure, the John Hancock Tower had panels falling off it, but architects don't kill like cops do. And that's why they generally hold themselves or at least are held to a higher standard. Another example, the American Society of Civil Engineers. I couldn't find an example of misconduct within their ranks. Sure, I'm sure someone stole a stapler over the years, but they do their job straight. And you know what? So many cops do also. But there are so many who don't, and such barriers to hold those accountable, it's foolish to say, oh, well, you know, everybody screws up as the standard. Not everybody has a gun. Not everybody has the license to shoot to kill. And when life and death are on the line, standards and accountability have to be the utmost highest. They can't just be comparable to the median level of human incompetence. On the show today, a spiel about what the Minneapolis City Council really did 
But first, New York Times opinion writer Jamel Bowie joins me to talk about policing and race. Really, few people that I have met are sharper and wiser than Jamel Bowie. You'll enjoy this conversation. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Jamel Bowie is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. Before that, he worked at Slate. He's a political analyst for CBS. And he joins me now. Hello, Jamel. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So you have such a broad ken. I mean, uh, officially, you're identified as writing about politics, history, and culture. But you have all the vectors. You go back. You survey sociologists. You can write about national issues, local issues. I'll let you set the table. Talking about the current protests and the current issue of police brutality, do you think it's fundamental right now to solve these problems, to look at history, to look at local structures, to look at the political parties? What should we look at first? That's a great question. I I think that for solving this particular problem, it is useful to look at the history of policing and to try to understand what we were trying to do in creating the kind of police forces that we have. Because I think the thing that it's an, the thing that's important to understand about any kind of institution that nothing is static, right? Nothing is static, nothing is inevitable, nothing's always been here. So we always we have not always had police like the way we have them now. There were conscious choices made to get policing to where it is now. So what what were those choices? Why did we make them? And if we want to reform police, can we, you know, what what should we take away from from the choices we made in the past? Yes. And in your recent column, you write the simple answer to the question, why don't the American police forces act as if they are accountable to black Americans is that they were never intended to be. OK, there's a lot of scholarship to back that up. But in different places in America, the conception, at least today, in 2020 is different. And what interests me is that in two of those places, Minneapolis and New York City, led by very liberal mayors, Jacob Fry and Bill de Blasio, I bet both of those guys, I don't actually, I don't want to assume what de Blasio is thinking anymore. But three weeks ago, he'd have read a column like yours, and I assume he'd agree with it. So why is that wholly inadequate to addressing real problems on the ground today? Do you mean in the sense that these events are happening in a ostensibly liberal city? Well, yeah, but not just that. Liber- I mean, New York was a liberal city when the now fascist Rudy Giuliani, or maybe drunk Rudy Giuliani is there. <laughs> these guys were elected on principles of police reform. And to some extent, you know, de-, de Blasio delivered police reform. And large populations in the city agree with your prescriptions and even know a lot of the history. And yet reform seems so hard. So what's baked into it more than a lack, than an ignorance about the... Um, how policing existed and what the history is. I, I think what's baked into it is that the reason, for example, why some neighborhoods are more heavily policed than others 
only has like a tangential relationship to say crime rates. It has a huge relationship to inequality, to segregation, to these sort of deeper material things. And I think that the thing that is big people are beginning to realize it's been difficult for folks to realize is that the problems here are tied to sort of longstanding inequities in cities and communities and, and neighborhoods in the country that don't that that cannot be resolved by more education that cannot be resolved by you know in the case of policing like training or you know body cams that as long as for example a city like Minneapolis is rigidly segregated and that's that racial segregation is also tied to like economic inequality and deprivation as long as the uh police forces are tasked with um, maintaining order in the midst of that segregation, you're going to have problems. You're going to have the sort of explosive conditions that we've witnessed. I mean, the, the thing that is striking to me, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, is that if you look at the history of rioting in America's urban, uh, urban areas, 92 in Los Angeles, uh, 67 in Detroit, 68 in Washington, D.C., uh, 63 in New York. Every single riot of those kinds has the exact same set of conditions. Segregation, economic deprivation, police violence. Every time. Um, and we as a country have decided not really to do, about, do anything about those things. And this happens to be a moment where I think they're all coming to a head. What about the, I've seen some scholarship on diversifying police forces and uh, what Doreen McKesson's group has found that once above 35% of police force is African-American, you do begin to see some changes. I was looking at the composition of police forces in different majority, not just majority minority, but majority black cities. And still in Baltimore, for instance, where you have a 28% of the population being white, you have over 50% of the police, and that's Baltimore City, not Baltimore County. But in Detroit, uh, with an 85% population that's African-American, it's 63% black. And I don't think either, I don't think either of those cities would be pointed to as sterling examples of the police getting it right. It still seems to be a lot harder than that fix. Right. And this gets to sort of the, I think the structural issue with policing that you can have more diverse police forces and it does do some work in kind of lessening the rate to police abuses. But as long as Policing is about sort of maintaining maintaining order, not necessarily solving crimes, which are two different things. Uh, you're going to run into problems like, well, who do people think cause disorder, right? Sort of these things are tied to conceptions of, um, of groups, of communities, and you're going to kind of inevitably get to um, situations that cause problems. But as let's say you were an elected official or advising someone, you can't go back in the past or undo society. Maybe you could try to uh, set change in motion. But, you know, in your next term, you're going to have to deliver some benefits to all the people. And maybe you want to have better policing become part of it. So knowing what you know about the structural issues, what are some basic fixes you would try to emphasize? I mean, the things I would try to emphasize are to, first of all, demilitarize police, take away 
their body armor, take away the armored cars, take away all these things, these heavy weapons that don't actually... 90%, 95% of what happens in any given community is not going to evolve any of that. So why do you need it? I would take steps to make sure that police have to always identify themselves. Um, they can't cover up their badges. I would have uh, heavy penalties on police who repeatedly uh, are cited for you know, uh, violence, for uh, misconduct. They would be fired and there should be a database of all fired police so they just can't move from one department to another. I would push to end qualified immunity, which uh, prevents most sort of like legal action against police who um, who use violence. I mean, there are there are things you can do basically to like mitigate harm, but at a certain point, it is the case that the like the de facto occupation of some urban neighborhoods by police is a thing driven by segregation. So uh, there's a there's a point at which the fixes have to come on a deeper you know systemic level. They have to come. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, reducing inequality, providing people with um, uh, job opportunities, with economic opportunity, with creating infrastructure for mental health. I mean, you can kind of go down the line here. You were in, you were in Ferguson and covered that in uh, 2014. And there was a lot of use of militarized weapons there. But as I look at, for instance, New York City, they're just basically beating people with sticks. So that's that's not that. That's not a solution that always uh, would apply. That's true, but it's also the case that these things don't happen in a vacuum. That there are cultures of police militarization, cultures of impunity, and tackling those cultures are is, I think, a paramount thing that um, cities and uh, reformers need to do. Yeah, well, cultures make it sound. I, I think maybe a little squishy and hard to put your finger on. Uh, tangibly, how big a difference would it make? If when policemen go on trial, they were likely to be convicted, just like if you look at the conviction rates of everyone else, most people who go on trial are likely to be convicted. It's not true with police officers. That's the kind of thing, this is going to seem like it's coming to left field, but it reminds me of a question I was asked on the topic of reparations. And it was sort of like, what, you know, let's say reparations were realistic right now. What, what difference would that make? And part of the thing about a question like that is the, the the political and social changes it would take for something like that to happen would then pre, it would presuppose a bunch of reform that's already gone down. You see what I'm saying? So like a world in which police who abuse their power, who commit violence or whatever, are convict are tried and convicted at rates that ordinary citizens do. That if if they're if they're found found guilty of it. They go to jail, or they're even you know tried in the first place. Would represent such a profound shift from the from the status quo that um, you know things would have already been would already be better. <laughs> right. Well, how I see it is, I think it is changing. I mean, you used to never get any convictions, and recently you have you have had a couple of high profile convictions, and the facts of the case do matter, but the jurisdictions really matter a lot. In fact, I think that there has been insufficient but very tangible changes regarding over-policing, regarding crime, you know, prosecution of crimes like marijuana. And it doesn't add up to enough, but 
to me, it seems like progress is being made. But of course, once you see a horrific video of someone like George Floyd being murdered, it doesn't matter if we've gone, I don't know, debate 10 or 20 or 30 percent of the way. It's just clear how much further we have to go. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. And so I wonder if you think, and this is where I am, sometimes I believe that you're right, that until we pretty much undo segregation uh, in American society, which I believe is a tall order, until we undo that, we're not going to get to the point where this isn't seen as a problem. On the other hand, the, I guess, delta between where we were in the 1970s and 80s and where we were, I think, in you know 2018, I think that's actually pretty big. I think that's actually bigger than people realize. If you look at the number of people who were shot, the number of times a New York police officer discharged a weapon, the number of actual convictions we got. So I don't know if the answer is more like, let us keep along the practical route to change. We have a few action items that are available. Let's see if we get to the point where we consider the situation not solved, but addressed, truly addressed, or if it's not worth putting the effort into that, because you're right, without um, desegregating American society, nothing's really going to change. I mean, it's difficult because you're right. You are right that there has been real tangible progress, but there's this way in which policing is unambiguously better than it was 30 or 40 years ago. But that, to me, just seems to say that policing 30 or 40 years ago was quite bad. It was, yes, yes. <laughs> and there's, it, it still seems, just based on the images we're seeing from these protests of police officers kind of indiscriminately attacking people, it seems that there's something very wrong um, that has not been fixed by the reforms we've seen in which may represent something like a more fundamental issue within the profession. And I, you know, I, I'm not someone who is sort of like either you do the most radical thing or you do nothing. Like I think that to the extent that there are reforms we can do to improve policing as it exists, we should pursue those reforms because that, that's a measurable reduction in harm for real people. Um, and it might even improve the police's ability to do their job. But to the extent that what we're seeing represents maybe like a fundamental problem within the profession, then I do think that as we pursue reform, we have to have an eye towards what would it, what does a world look like where we don't have police in this exact form? What, what let's think, the, let's think through the functions of policing as it exists and does it need to exist as it does right now? Because it's not, because we keep running into the same set of problems over and over again. I want to end with one question on uh, Trump. Do you think he's, by trying to position himself as the law and order candidate, do you think he's misplaying the hand he has or just doing the best with the pair of twos that he's sitting with? I think he's probably misplaying the hand he has. I I said in a column uh, earlier this week that um, you can't really play the law and order card when disorder is happening on your watch. Kind of the the premise of law and order is that you will impose order. Um, but if you already have the power to impose order and you're not doing it, then you can't really you can't really go that route. I think that the strongest the strongest card for Trump remains doing something about the public health crisis and trying to improve the economy. But those things are not glamorous. They are boring. They require all the work he does not want to do. And so I think he's going to continue to go along the law and order path, despite it, I think, being a dead end for his campaign. 
Jamel Bowie is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. He comments for CBS, where you see him on Face the Nation, on Good Weeks, and he used to work for Slate. Thanks so much, Jamel. Thank you. And now the spiel. Not only is there a widespread call to defund the police, but perhaps you have heard there is an answer to that call. Washington Post, nine Minneapolis city council members announced plans Sunday to disband the city's police department. New York Times breaking news. A veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis city council pledged to dismantle the city's police department, vowing to create a new public safety system. CNN, Minneapolis city council, announces intent to defund the police. Disband, dismantle, defund. No more cops. Wait. Let's listen to what Lisa Bender, head of the city council, actually said. And we committed to dismantling policing as we know it in the city of Minneapolis and to rebuild with our community a new model of public safety that actually keeps our community safe. And policing as we know it. Well, since policing as we know it includes chokeholds and kneeling on suspects and no accountability for officers with a litany of complaints against them, that really isn't of substance. Bender, when asked by CNN to clarify, said this. Um, In the past, I've supported and attempted to and sometimes successfully moved funding out of the police department into community-based safety strategies. So that is what I think about when I think about that ask. So this breaking news that supposedly breaks with all that came before is really nothing of the sort. It's a commitment to better policing, as has been championed for years by progressives like Bender. And I say good. I support what she's saying. I think it's pretty smart for her to say it this way. Uh, The public seems to be demanding some sort of maximalist claim to reform, but that's what she's doing. She's committing herself to reform. It really would be just as accurate to say that the Minneapolis City Council has vowed to end policing as we know it, as it would be accurate to claim that the Minneapolis City Council vows to reform the police department, which they should do and which is what I hope for. But there is this greater call to defund the police. And as I have said, and I'm not going to belabor this point, it makes little sense, but I've been thinking about it in a different way, maybe, than I presented on Friday, and here goes. I have been searching for an example from an expert of what this would actually look like. And it's impossible to find because no municipality of any size on earth, as far as I could tell, has actually foregone sworn officers with arrest and detention powers. Online, I keep seeing this example of Camden, New Jersey. I was confused because I know a lot about Camden, New Jersey. I remember when Chris Christie championed the change. And what it is, is a city that for the same amount of money, i.e., there was no defunding, decided to have more police officers, but also bypassed the sclerotic police department that was in place. They basically eliminated city police and went just with county police. And by the way, when they did so, they also hired three quarters of the old city police. All those guys wear blue and have guns and have badges and can arrest you. That's the big example. The Washington Post, reporting on the defund the police movement, wrote this. Proponents of police defunding say reform alone is not enough and has not worked in the past. They say leaders must make policy changes that reduce reliance on officers and reallocate money spent on law enforcement. So let's analyze that. Reform hasn't worked, but what will work are policy changes and reallocation of money. In other words, reform but with 
a more dramatic, though less accurate label. New York Times op-ed. I was really searching out. What do they mean by defund the police? This was written by Philip V. and Tenjue McHarris. Headline, no more money for the police. They write, more training or diversity among officers won't end police brutality, nor will firing and charging individual officers. Look at the Minneapolis Police Department. The department offers trainings for implicit bias, mindfulness, and de-escalation. It bans warrior-style policing and practices reconciliation efforts in communities of color. George Floyd was still murdered. Yes, he was. Well, so much of what they wrote bears further scrutiny. The Minneapolis mayor did ban warrior training. Guess what? The obtuse and confrontational union head went and secured it anyway for free for police members sort of as a thumb in the eye, which is maybe part of the warrior training. As far as the mindfulness training, great. It turns out that mindfulness training, which began in 2014 and is given over three days in the academy, somehow had no effect on Derek Chauvin, an officer who had been on the force for 18 years and hasn't been in the academy since, I don't know, 2002. It's so confusing to me because when committed socialists back free healthcare for all, it's because an existing model is out there and works to one extent or another in different societies. They can at least lay out the steps of what we need to do to get to free healthcare for all. The same with free college, the same with most, if not all aspects of the Green New Deal. Some of these policy choices would, to my mind, be unwise or cost too much or the trade-offs wouldn't be worth it. But they're at least a strategy with clear and articulable goals. This defund the police call is none of that. It's not pie in the sky because pies and sky exist. It's not a wish list, it's a myth list. I really can't even understand why anyone would advocate for it because they always think the bolder the stance, the better. I swear to you, I am not against this, whatever the this is to be against, because I don't want police reform. I'm against it. I'm against saying it and emphasizing it because I so badly do want reform. And if this is what you spend your time and attention on, you're going to take your eye off actual tangible reforms that are proposed, or you're going to so frighten and piss off the average American that your agenda will never get done. Or... Maybe some version of this will get passed and then you're going to get way down in a morass about how to reinvent society from the ground up. The problem is not linguistic. You can't have progress if you don't make a demand. The more tangible the demand, the greater likelihood of achieving progress. DeRay McKesson and his group has put forward eight data-driven demands. They've branded them eight can't wait because we like hashtags these days. These include banning chokeholds, increasing the number of black officers, banning shooting at moving vehicles, The group claims this will end police shootings by 72%. There is no way that that will happen, not right on the nose and probably not close to 72% because it's an extrapolated number. But so what? It's an anchoring device. They're all pursuits worth undertaking. Some of them maybe won't get passed. Some of them won't have a huge effect. Like body cameras seem not to have a huge effect, but they're all worth doing. They're all worth putting our effort into so much more than defund the police. New York State just passed a bill that end qualified immunity. That is great. Justin Amash and Ayanna Presley have introduced it on a national level. Get behind that, not hashtag defund the police. 
What is better, actual reforms with actual chances of passing or a slogan that has to immediately be redefined as soon as you mention it? You can't hear a discussion of defund the police without immediately hearing the person who proposes it rush in to say, and by defund the police, we mean, and then they say something other than defunding the police. Here's John Lovett from Crooked Media on his podcast, Love It or Leave It. There's obviously calls to defund the police. For a lot of people who are not familiar with the topic and are coming to the topic, defund the police sounds so radical. And when actually the policy is uh, reform the police, demilitarize the police, and focus the police where actual armed uh, security, armed safety officers are required. And for mental health interventions, uh, 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 addiction interventions, social welfare interventions, there's other conflicts between people in parking lots over parking spaces. There's a whole host of other responses that are possible. Parking space mediation unit aside, love it, just articulated some reforms. I'm in favor of a bunch of those reforms. I don't think demilitarization is a key, for example. Most police shootings don't come from tanks, but they're all reforms. That's what they are. We're talking about reforms. When proponents of defund the police talk about the paucity of change brought about by mindfulness training, I don't immediately jump to, therefore, no reforms work, therefore, whatever, something, something, socialism, no cops. I wonder if all the anti-bias training that I've acquiesced to, you know, as an employee of a company that you've probably acquiesced to, which really has no solid foundation of science behind it, maybe I should have objected. If doing this training that has never been proved to work, this supposed training that's never been proved to work, will one day down the line embolden critics to say, no reforms work, therefore let's burn the system to the ground. Maybe we haven't been stalwart enough in saying, stop with the nonsense. Maybe we should have been saying, you know what, I refuse to engage in unproven magical thinking because the consequences of which might be that real, actual, needed reforms don't happen, and they use this as an excuse. This is exactly why I'm in the tangible, measurable, askable reform camp. The more than camp, the mindset, the way of life. And this is why I'm not in the dream big or else you're a sellout camp. It's also because I'm humble. For example, part of the defund cry is social workers. Social workers to intervene with domestic disputes, not police with guns. You know, in my lifetime... It was once the case that cops barely intervened in domestic disputes. This is, I guess, where we want to go back to. But then a movement arose and it caused the cops to intervene. And then the pendulum swung back a little bit because of some mandatory arrest laws. And now in a lot of states, they're rethinking mandated police interventions. So on the books, or at least proposed in some states are maybe the police, when they come to a domestic dispute, shouldn't have to arrest one of the parties. Here now is New Hampshire's WMUR-TV reporting on such a proposal to change that requirement. This was from 2013. Victim advocates are pushing back against a bill which would limit the arrest powers of police officers called to the scene of alleged domestic violence. Quoted in this piece were proponents of changing the proposal to allow the police to have more discretion and maybe not to make arrests. But then the piece also quoted Jill Rocky of the Crisis Center of Central New Hampshire, 
who is advocating for women. And when they do come forward, whether it's a 911 call or they're going to get an order, they need to be able to call the police and have them react immediately. Um, and this bill prevents them from doing that. Uh-huh. I began researching how these laws, these mandatory arrest laws, came to be. Many go back to a landmark study conducted by Lawrence Sherman, who's credited as the founder of evidence-based policing. He embarked on a years-long undertaking done with one police department whereby officers randomly selected a third of domestic dispute offenders to arrest, a third to be counseled, and a third would be separated from their domestic partner. The finding showed that there was a clear deterrent effect for arrest. It had a, quote, virtually unprecedented impact in changing then-current police practices. The name of this landmark study, and it was named for the department that carried it out, was the Minneapolis Domestic Violence Experiment. Now we're thinking about a new Minneapolis policing experiment. And my hope, my wish, is that this new policing experiment in Minneapolis be undertaken with all the rigor and farsightedness that we could muster. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly, just associate producer, wants to defund the Wall Street Journal. I mean, keep the journal. Just stop printing op-eds by the horrible John Fund. Daniel Schrader, just producer, says Batman Begins should be considered an organic movie because Christian Bale and Katie Holmes, no chemistry. The gist. I'm sorry I had to impugn the motives of the many brave, honorable, and righteous members who wore the uniform and pledged fealty to a valuable organization. The Houston Astros. Unfortunately, a few bad Astros spoiled the bunch. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>